Well, welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 summer interlude between seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Rousseau and the Makings of the Utopian Power State. There are few more odious men that emerge from the pages of European history than that first truly modern intellectual, the professional hypocrite Jean-Jacques Rousseau, famed author of The Social Contract. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher who knew him well, by bitter experience called him a monster who saw himself as the only important being in the universe. The famed Voltaire thought him a monster of vanity and vileness. Diderot, after knowing him for many years, described him as deceitful, vain as Satan, ungrateful, cruel, hypocritical, and full of malice. He is perhaps most tellingly summed up in the words of the woman he claimed was his only love, Sophie de Hudento. In old age, she said, and I quote, he was ugly enough to frighten me and love did not make him more attractive. But he was a pathetic figure and I treated him with gentleness and kindness. He was an interesting madman. Following the Greek philosopher Plato, Rousseau was a utopian dreamer, yet without doubt was a debauched narcissist who, whilst presuming to lecture others on education, family and state, abandoned all five of his own children in infancy to a hospice where they almost certainly died. In many ways, his thought paved the way for the French Revolution and influenced the Russian Revolution, as well as playing a real role in inspiring both communist and fascist regimes in the 20th century. He was an intellectual forerunner of Karl Marx and saw in the state the key to utopia. The historian Paul Johnson has written, Rousseau's state is not merely authoritarian, it is also totalitarian, since it orders every aspect of human activity, thought included. Under the social contract, the individual was obliged to alienate himself with all his rights to the whole community, i.e. the state. The function of the social contract and the state it brought into being was to make man whole again. Make man one and you will make him as happy as he can be. You must therefore treat citizens as children and control their upbringing and thoughts, planting the social law in the bottom of their hearts, according to Rousseau. They then become social men by their natures and citizens by their inclination. They will be one, they will be good, they will be happy, and their happiness will be that of the Republic. He did not use the word brainwash, but he wrote, those who control a people's opinions control its actions. 
Such control is established by treating citizens from infancy as children of the state, trained to consider themselves only in their relationship to the body of the state. He moved the political process to the very center of human existence by making the legislator, who is also a pedagogue, into the new messiah, capable of solving all human problems by creating new men." End quote. So Rousseau sounds positively contemporary in this depiction, and it is perhaps not surprising that his utopian thought has so decisively shaped our political and social order. Today's cultural Marxists, busy with their ideological subversion and demoralization of the West in the name of social justice, have Rousseau to thank for their core ideas. God's people need to be on their guard here as well. When anti-Christian utopianism is imported into mission theology in the name of the reign or kingdom of God, a socio-political religion replaces Christianity. When considering the mission of God and reign of Christ, it is then imperative that Christians understand the difference between utopia and the kingdom of God, lest they be found advancing the cause of other gods and another faith. The term utopia originates with Thomas More's ideal society, and it means no place. More, a Roman Catholic who was sainted in 1935, was in fact far from biblical in his thinking. His treatise is a plea for the abolition of private property and the establishment of communism. In More's work, nature demands control by the state, and the state becomes man's recreator, provider, and preserver. As with all utopians, unity was More's supreme goal, and unity could only be achieved through state control. Peace comes through the state, the humanly wrought oneness into which man is absorbed. More saw himself as an elite ruler in a new order in which men would be manipulated to remove all social divisions. It is not surprising that Lenin found inspiration in Thomas More's ideas. By contrast, true Christian orthodoxy cannot produce such utopian illusions. The creator redeemer God in his complete word has declared the future of his kingdom and rule established by his will and power. Since God governs history, the Christian in faith, obedience and confidence moves toward God's predestined future. The triune sovereign Lord who by his providence and power sustains all things at every moment is the one in whom the Christian trusts. Now, bereft of such security, the non-believer must posit an entirely different worldview. Utopianism, which denies God's predestinating purpose, is more than a political idea. It is a philosophy of life, a religious theology. Man takes the place of the mythical, non-existent God of the Bible. Instead of seeing man's environment as a good, 
though fallen creation under the providence of God, utopianism perceives man to be in a chaotic universe that perpetually threatens to crush him. The noted British utopian dreamer Julian Huxley encapsulates the modern humanistic temper well. And I quote him now, so far as we can see, the universe rules itself. Even if a God does exist behind or above the universe as we experience it, we can have no knowledge of such a power. The actual gods of historical religions are only the personifications of impersonal facts of nature and of facts of our inner mental life." End quote. In this view, nature is as capricious as the pagan gods of Greco-Roman mythology or as man's own inner life of evil thoughts. As the philosopher Thomas Molnar puts it, our vision of the universe inevitably influences our vision of society and hence our organization of society. If the universal is hostile to us, we conceive of society, our little universe, as also hostile." End quote. So having jettisoned the God of the Bible, utopians are confronted by a threatening world of flux of change. They see no God to give purpose, direction, or rationality to life. This world of chaos in which man's freedom runs wild just jeopardizes its own existence by its unpredictability. Man lives in terror, a victim of fate and full of self-pity. Man in a world without God has an insatiable desire for control, rooted in the hope that man can be liberated from unpredictability into the true freedom of necessity. As the Marxist utopian J.B.S. Haldane put it, there is no supernatural and nothing metaphysical. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. This is a paradox, but a truth." End quote. But when man frees himself from the sovereignty of God, he discovers a serious problem. Absolute autonomy, which literally means self-law, leads logically to total anarchy of thought and to social chaos. To avoid this disaster, the individual is inevitably plunged into a collectivity that will assume the role of God in creating, predestinating, saving, guiding, and providing for the newly liberated man. The new man-god is the collective agency for organizing man's liberty and salvation. This collective divinity is a Nebuchadnezzar-sized idol that steadily lays claim to all the attributes of the God it has replaced. The utopian devotee may not seem religious since he rarely mentions God, judgment, salvation, heaven or hell, but he constantly formulates new doctrine, ceremonies and sacrifices. Julian Huxley, the key writer of UNESCO's founding framework document, is explicit on this point. Quote, if we translate salvation into terms of this world, we find that it means achieving harmony between different parts of our nature, 
including its subconscious depths and its rarely touched heights, and also achieving some satisfactory relation of adjustment between ourselves and the outer world, including not only the world of nature, but the social world of man. I believe it to be possible to achieve salvation in this sense, and right to aim at doing so, just as I believe it possible and valuable to achieve a sense of union with something bigger than our ordinary selves, even if that something be not a god, but an extension of our narrow core to include in a single grasp ranges of outer experience and inner nature on which we do not ordinarily draw. You see, Huxley here interestingly blends secular terminology with the language of pagan spirituality. The union with something bigger than the self is the whole, the one, the ideal of man divinized in and by his unification with himself. Huxley goes on to argue that purpose lies in science, namely the endless possibilities of the evolution of man by socialization, organization, and technology, through which man gains power over nature to deliver and save him from suffering and pain, typically by inflicting pain elsewhere. The possible implications of such a utopian vision were foreseen by George Orwell in his famous dystopian novel 1984, where he envisages the problem confronting all utopian dreams. Fallen man's exercise of power is demonic. Only power for the sake of power is expressed when man usurps the prerogatives of God. Orwell has O'Brien declare in a noted passage, power is in inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Do you begin to see then what kind of world we are creating? It is the exact opposite of the stupid hedonistic utopias that the old reformers imagined. A world of fear and treachery and torment, a world of trampling and being trampled upon, a world which will grow not less, but more merciless as it refines itself. Progress in our world will be progress toward more pain. Already we are breaking down the habits of thought which have survived from before the revolution. We have cut the links between child and parent and between man and man and between man and woman. No one dares trust a wife or a child or a friend any longer. But in the future, there will be no wives and no friends. Children will be taken from their mothers at birth as one takes eggs from a hen. The sex instinct will be eradicated. Procreation will be an annual formality like the renewal of a ration card. There will be no loyalty except loyalty toward the party. There will be no love except the love of Big Brother. There will be no art, no literature, no science. When we are omnipotent, we shall have no more need of science. There will be no distinction between beauty and ugliness. There will be no curiosity, no employment of the process of life. 
all competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always, do not forget this, Winston, always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on the enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Now there we have a powerful image of man's sin coming to self-conscious realization where man as the new divinity gains the sensation of pseudo-omnipotence in the collectivist order. Playing at God, total terror and total destruction are the reality as the new man-god brings his perverse wrath to bear on the world. This is his route to godhood, the exercise of naked power. He starts with the anarchistic rejection of God and then proceeds to a remaking of man as nature or God, incarnate through the parliament of man, the federation of the world as Tennyson referred to it. The solution to man's disunity, his alienation from himself, is therefore seen in a collectivist order and ultimately a world state. This particular concept reflects more than mere idealism or a substratum of Western thought. It is a logical necessity born of a lasting deep religious hunger in those who have rejected the God of scripture. Man needs order, certainty and salvation and where God's governance is denied, man will attempt to mimic it. Wherever man has sought an imminent, not transcendent source of power, a theology of state has developed and a new doctrine of God has been fleshed out. Although explicitly theological language is often jettisoned, the new doctrine is expressed in the terminology of the social or scientific revolutionary or in that of the new occultist spirituality. All that impedes the revolution is the propaganda of priests, the family and the church. Consequently, orthodox Christianity is seen as the ultimate enemy of utopia. As J.L. Talman expressed it, and I quote, the messianic trends of the 19th century considered Christianity as arch enemy. Their own message of salvation was utterly incompatible with the true Christian doctrine, that of original sin with its vision of history as the story of the fall and its denial of man's power to attain salvation by his own exertions." End quote. So man has replaced God and his word and needs a new doctrine of God and a new word. In this reimagining process, he transfers the key attributes of God to man and his agencies. Because man is a sinner, these utopian schemes must always be dystopian in their outcomes. The delusions of men in this regard are staggering. 
Science in this vision becomes only what serves man's purpose, which, as we have seen, is power and control as an end. Society itself becomes an experiment and an exercise in material manipulation. Human beings become little more than the guinea pigs of scientific planners. For any experiment to be valid, the basic requirement is total control of the environment. All the factors must be under controlled conditions. Therefore, in the utopian vision of society as social experiment, a totalitarian vision is a necessary starting point, without which the experiment will be neither valid nor scientific. This is what is said with regard to the failures of Marxism in its political regimes past and present. There was or is a failure to foresee or control certain factors. Having learned from these mistakes, many in the intelligentsia believe the experiment can now function properly. Unforeseen variables can be anticipated and eliminated. Science has ceased to be the work then of understanding reality. It has become the task of controlling it. So rather than the Christian view of reality, which leaves predestination to God, thereby leaving man in a place of liberty by denying the right of total control to any human agency, the scientific society believes its desired social results can be obtained by means of controlled causation. Now this has led scientists, futurists, and political utopians to discuss or pursue everything from cloning to the modification of human organs, the creation of a synthetic human being, control of the weather, elimination of crime, modification of food, colonization of the universe, development of an artificial sun, elimination of disease, creation of transhumans, forced sterilization and postponement or deliverance from death. This new juggernaut seems terrifying and imposing, as intimidating as the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar doubtless appeared to Daniel and his friends. But the Christian must not indeed cannot fear, nor can we yield, because the world of the future shall be God's world, and man in that world shall be only what the predestinating power and control of God intend him to be.